0: We'll hear argument first this morning in number
1: 9985, Jane Bray versus Alexandria Women's Health
2: Clinic. Uh, Mr. Sekulow. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, through the misapplication of Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia now monitors state trespass action. It has been our position from the outset of this litigation that this case should not be in federal court. Fourth Circuit holding rests on two faulty legal premises. First, that opposition to abortion constitutes invidious discrimination against women. And secondly, the district court further compounded its error by misapplying this court's jurisprudence with regard to the constitutional right to interstate travel by finding that petitioners' conduct would have an effect on interstate travel and thereby purposely violating the right to interstate travel. The Fourth Circuit's position goes a long way in making 1985-3, the general federal tort law that this Court has long counseled against. There is redress available, and that is in the Virginia Commonwealth Courts. In fact, the Circuit Court in Norfolk, Virginia, has issued injunctions which prohibits blockades and prohibit trespass activity. The law does offer redress. This is not a case where redress is unavailable. It is state court injunctions whose provisions mirror Those of the federal court here in significant areas have been upheld in numerous state courts on appeal. This is a case of statutory construction and statutory interpretation. The question presented is, does Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 cover the petitioner's activities? Our position is that it does not, and the Fourth Circuit is wrong and should be reversed. In order for there to be a violation of Section 2 of the Act, There must be established, as this court held in Griffin, a class-based, invidiously discriminatory animus behind the conspirator's actions. Here, the class has been defined as women seeking abortion. Simply put, women seeking abortion is not a valid class. A class should be defined by who people are, not something they would like to do or an activity they would like to engage in. Respondus class theory converts any group seeking to engage in any activity or conduct into a class again creating a general federal tort law. Both the District Court and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals entered over a dozen specific findings of facts dealing with the motivation or purpose of the petitioner's activities. Yet despite these specific factual findings, the lower court came to the illogical conclusion of law that opposition to abortion constitutes invidious class-based discrimination against women. That proposition, has already been rejected by this court in finding that classifications based on pregnancies do not constitute per se violations of equal protection or do not constitute invidious discrimination. That was in gedulding. This is especially so here since the record establishes clearly what motivates the petitioner's conduct, and that is their opposition to the activity of abortion. This is not a case where the petitioners are using their opposition of abortion as a pretext to some type of gender discrimination. The petitioners did not engage in their conduct, or nor would have they engaged in their conduct, because of its effect on women. It is because of their opposition to abortion that these petitioners are motivated. Petitioners simply do not engage in the type of activity and do not conduct their activities with the invidious discriminatory animus required by Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. As I said, there's redress available. This is not a case where redress has been unavailable. Petitioners uh, have been the subject of state court injunctions in other parts of the country. There's also an issue I think that's equally important here, and that is the scope of the protections under Section 1985-3, which is Section 2 of the Act of the Ku Klux Klan Act. There was a limiting amendment drafted by Representative Willard. The purpose of it was to mark a boundary with regard to the overall scope of the Act. Concerned over possible... Uh, creations of a general federal tort law the drafters of the limiting amendment required that there not just be a deprivation of a right but there be a deprivation of equality of equal privileges and immunities or equal protection of the law thus for a denial to be actionable pursuant to the act to be a conspiratorial objective the conspirators must seek to permit to some what they deny to others here there's been no denial of equality the scope of the petitioners' protest affects all involved in the abortion pro- process. As this Court recognized in Novotny, section two of the Ku Klux Klan Act itself is a remedial provision. It provides a remedy in damages. The rights, privileges, and immunities that it protects are to be found elsewhere. Here, the respondents have asserted that petitioners violated their constitutional right to interstate travel. They base this assertion on the theory that by simply being engaged in interstate travel and having that right affected by petitioners' conduct, that the petitioners thereby purposefully violated the respondents' constitutional right to interstate travel. That theory of the respondents would turn any potential automobile accident involving an out-of-state driver into an interstate travel claim because it would have an effect on interstate travel. And I would point out that the Fourth Circuit, in its findings of fact, held that Petitioners' activities, if they were to have been engaged in, would have had an effect on interstate travel. They did not ever find, under a finding of fact, that there was a purposeful violation of interstate travel. Our position is that the Fourth Circuit and the District Court greatly expanded this Court's jurisprudence with regard to interstate travel. First, this is not a case where the petitioners discriminated against in-state residents versus out-of-state residents concerning access to the abortion Clinic. The respondents conceded this during the previous argument. secondly, this court 's cases, in the plain language of the statute itself, require that for there to be an interstate travel violation that has to be a purposeful deprivation of the right. The purpose, as found by the district court and confirmed by the, affirmed by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals here, was that the petitioners engaged in their activities in order to express their opposition to abortion, not no findings of fact that there was purposeful. purposeful deprivations of the right to interstate travel. In fact, as I said, the the trial court itself only held that petitioners, if they were to have engaged in their activities, would have had only an effect on interstate travel. There is no finding that uh, here there was a purposeful action taken in deprivation of the right. It's important to, to note again that in drafting the legislation, the 42nd Congress made the determination in the concept of the limiting amendment that they were going to look at the issue through the lens of motivation and not impact. As I said, the language of itself, the statute itself requires requires that there must be a purposeful violation of the interstate travel right. The question in one sense would be, did the petitioners conduct their activities for the purpose of depriving respondents of their right to travel? The record below supports that they did not. The trial court's detailed findings of fact establishes what the animus and motivation of Janie Bray and the other petitioners. Yes,
3: may ma'am. I just ask you one question? You said that there was no district court finding with regard to intent to interfere with uh, travel. I, I have before me the finding that petitioners engaged in this conspiracy for the purpose, either directly or indirectly, of depriving women seeking abortions and related medical and counseling services of the right to travel. is court. Isn't that a finding of fact.
2: Uh, no, that was a conclusion of law. The, the finding of fact here states, and that's on uh, page 22a of the joint, the uh, petitions uh, um, appendix states, rescue demonstrations, paragraph 18 specifically, rescue demonstrations by blocking access to clinics, therefore, have the effect of obstructing and interfering with interstate travel of these women. The test, however, is that there must be purposeful activity, that their aim must have been, not a mere consequence of it, which is what the, um, where the illogical conclusion of law took place here.
3: But the district judge did the, draw the inference and stated in his conclusions of law that that was the purpose.
2: Yes. He, yes. However, our position is that his, the, the dis, J- Judge Ellis at the district court's findings of fact clearly cut against that. Justice Stevens, because of his specific finding on right to travel, talks about effect. And there is a difference between purpose and effect. 1985-3, Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act requires that there be a purposeful deprivation of the right not an impact, and that's what the motivation, the the view of what the motivation has to be on. What is it that motivated these petitioners? Here, it was clearly their opposition to the activity of abortion. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
0: Very well, Mr. Sekulow. Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States appears in this case not to defend petitioners' tortious conduct, but to defend the proper interpretation of section 1985 3. As this court explained in Griffin, the language of that section, covering conspiracies whose purpose is to deprive people of equal protection or equal privileges and immunities, means that the conspirators must be motivated by, a, quote, class-based, invidiously discriminatory animus, end quote. If a group of conspirators assault someone carrying a picket sign because they don't believe there should be a First Amendment right to picket, they certainly are guilty of a tort, and they interfere with that individual's exercise of constitutionally protected rights, but in no sense do they deprive him of equal protection or equal privileges and immunities simply because they assault him and not everyone else. But if the conspirators come upon a picketer and assault him because he's black, and they don't believe that blacks should have equal First Amendment rights, then they satisfy the class-based, invidiously discriminatory animus requirement. That is not what is going on here. Petitioners do not interfere with respondents' rights because respondents are women. Petitioners do what they do because they're opposed to an activity, the activity of abortion. They target their conspirators not because of who they are, but because of what they are doing. Respondents now seem to recognize this. In their brief on reargument, they say that this is, quote, unlike the usual Section 1985-3 case, end quote. But it is not a Section 1985-3 case at all. And the reason is that Section 1985-3 is not concerned simply with the deprivation of federal rights, however fundamental, however important. It is concerned with the discriminatory deprivation of federal rights and petitioners are perfectly non-discriminatory, non-discriminating in their opposition to abortion. The respondent's answer to this argument is that only women can exercise the right to an abortion, and therefore petitioners' anti-abortion activities have a discriminatory impact on women. People intend the natural consequences of their acts, and therefore, respondents argue, you can infer from the discriminatory impact that petitioners have a discriminatory purpose. A few examples will show that the logic of that doesn't hold up. Consider, for example, an Indian tribe with exclusive fishing rights in a particular river. A group of ecologists get together who are opposed to fishing in the river because they think it disturbs the ecology. They interfere with the Indians' rights. The impact of their conspiracy is on a particular Indian group. But it would be quite illogical to infer from that that they have any animus against Indians. They're opposed to fishing in the river, not Indians, even though only Indians can fish in the river. Petitioners are opposed to abortion, not women, even though only women can exercise the right to an abortion. Another example, suppose a group of men and women get together who are opposed to the draft, and they interfere with registration. The direct impact of their conspiracy will be felt only by men, since only men are eligible for the draft. But again, it would be quite wrong to infer from that impact that the conspirators have any animus against men. They're opposed to the draft, not men, even though only men are eligible for the draft. This court has, in fact, already rejected respondents' logic in the Geduldig case. There, Justice Stewart, writing for the court three years after he wrote for the court in Griffin, explained that classifications based on pregnancy are not the same as gender discrimination, even though only women can become pregnant. Accepting Respondent's argument that activities in opposition to abortion are the same as gender discrimination because only women can have abortions would require overruling the rationale of gedulding. The decision below should be reversed for an independent reason, the reason that petitioners did not act with the purpose of interfering with Respondent's right to interstate travel. This is Respondent's logic, one petitioners' purpose is to block access to abortion clinics. Two, some of those seeking access to the abortion clinics come from out of state. Three, petitioners know this. And four, therefore, petitioners' purpose is to interfere with people from out of state getting access to the abortion clinics. That confuses purpose, which is what the statute requires in plain terms, with incidental effect, which is insufficient under the statute. For example, under respondent's logic, consider a typical picket line. The union's purpose is to keep the customers out of a particular establishment. Some of the customers are black. The union knows this. Under respondent's logic, you would say that the union's purpose is to keep out black customers. But that's an inaccurate statement of their purpose, just as it is an inaccurate statement of petitioner's purpose to say that they keep people from they want to keep people from out of state from gaining access to the abortion clinics. Last year respondents counsel said it would be silly his word silly to argue that the petitioners care whether the people come from out of state or not. But if the people don't if the petitioners don't care whether the people are from out of state or not, you cannot say that their purpose is to keep out of staters from obtaining access to the abortion clinic. This Court's decisions on the right to travel recognize this distinction. The Court has found that right implicated only when there has been discrimination between residents on the one hand and non-residents or newcomers on the other, since Shapiro against Thompson, or Dunn v. Blumstein. Mr. Roberts, was there discrimination in the Griffin case? The allegations were that the part of the motivation of the conspirators were to keep out-of-state civil rights workers uh, from traveling on the interstate highways. The court did not articulate in that case what would satisfy a claim under the right to travel. It indicated uh, a number of points that were open to the plaintiffs to prove on remand and then said this evidence and other uh, evidence might suffice to show a right to travel. So it, it may be that they would have made a discrimination claim in that case, in that case, making it to be like the guest case where the specific allegation was that there was a right to interfere with interstate travel as such. Both because there is no class-based, invidiously discriminatory animus in this case, and because petitioners did not interfere with the purpose of interfering with the right to travel, the decision below should be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Can Roberts.
5: Council, may I just ask one question? Um, did the um, municipality here of Alexandria or any state officials make a submission to the district court that there? own law enforcement authorities were being overwhelmed.
4: There is an amicus brief before this court from the false church uh, community saying that their resources were inadequate to deal with this particular block. Did the uh,
5: false church municipality make any request to the governor of the state of Virginia for assistance?
4: I'm not aware that there was any such request. And did the
5: governor make any uh, request to the attorney general of the United States for assistance?
4: I'm not aware. This was done, of course, in an injunctive capacity, so there wasn't a particular incident to respond to, um, so there wouldn't have been any of those sorts of uh, requests. The ability, of course, of the the federal government to respond to such a situation is dealt with under Section 3 of the Act, entirely independent of this section before the Court today. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Ms. Ellis, we'll hear now from you.
4: Mr.
6: Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Like the black students in Little Rock in 1957 who faced angry mobs as they walked up to the entrance of integrated schools, the women in this case, many of who came from other states to Falls Church, Virginia, faced angry, intimidating mobs who physically obstructed their freedom of movement, blocking streets, parking lots, entrances, and exits. This case presents the court with an issue that arises infrequently. But it's vitally important whether federal law federal law prohibits a mob from nullifying the constitutional rights of a class. Section 1985 3 was enacted, as Representative Schallabarger explained in 1871, to provide a remedy against conspirators who trample into dust the <laughs> newly acquired political rights of the freedmen. This court's Section 1985 3 jurisprudence has strived both to give effect to congressional intent and to avoid making the statute into a federal tort law. Far from being mere torts, the acts of petitioners here are part of a nationwide systematic conspiracy to use force to deny women in America the equal protection of the laws, to do precisely what Congress sought to prevent in enacting Section 1985-3. All the four elements that this court has required to make out a Section 1985 three claim were proved. Excuse yet. me.
0: Suppose the same thing were were done to prevent uh, unionization. I mean, suppose you have a a right-to-work group that that uh, uh, nationwide seeks to uh, uh, prevent uh, unionization. <coughs> Would uh, that would fit the description you've just given. Would that be covered by uh, by this statute?
6: Well, Your Honor, and Scott, this court held that that kind of class-based animus is not cognizable under 1985-3.
0: Well, then then what you've just said is not enough for a violation of 1985-3. The mere fact that you're...
6: I'm sorry, Your Honor, in this court... In,
0: in, your, in organized fashion, you seek to prevent people from exercising a constitutional right is not, a, is not alone enough.
6: Is, no, I'm sorry, I misspoke, Your Honor. In... Scott, this court recognized that, discrimin- that animus against union activities or economic classes are not sufficient um, to form a class under 1985-3. Here,
0: yes, yet that is right, the right to organize.
6: Okay, assuming that this court had held that anti-union animus is sufficient to form a class, then I do believe that blocking people from an activity that only that group can engage in God suffice to prove class-based animus, especially when the right they seek to block is a constitutional right of a class, an important constitutional right that only that class has, and especially as in this case, when this court recently recognized in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that that right is necessary in order for that class to be equal citizens. In this case, the two elements of the conspiracy of, of Section 1985(3) 3 are not at issue, the conspiracy and the act and further the furtherance of the conspiracy. Although there's no dispute about those elements, I would like to note that the mob characteristics of this case are particularly important. Congress enacted Section 1985(3) 3 called the Ku Klux Klan Act because it understood that mobs could deprive individuals of rights in a way that single single individuals cannot. The petitioners here who operate systematically in large groups nationwide are a much closer analog to the Ku Klux Klan than the two conspirators that this court recognized could violate section 1985(3) in Griffin, for example. Because there's no dispute about the conspiracy and the act, I will focus on the other two elements, that the conspiracy be motivated by class-based animus, and here, that an independent right the right to travel, be violated. To begin with class-based animus, we must first show that women are a protected class. And indeed, neither the petitioners nor the Solicitor General dispute that women are a class under 1985-3. The broad text and legislative history of Section 1985-3 dictate that conclusion. Instead, petitioners in the government argue that here, only a subset of women are affected. That subset distinction is false discrimination usually occurs against the subset of a class that is exercising its rights. For example, those who blocked African American citizens from entering integrated schools targeted only some citizens, but demonstrated invidious racial animus against an entire class. The requirement of class-based animus was created by this court in Griffin v. Breckinridge in order to prevent Section 1985.3, from becoming a federal tort law. animus should not be confused with personal malice or hostility, especially because much of discrimination against women throughout history has been benign. More specifically, women's reproductive capacity has served as the benign rationale to deny women a host of equal opportunities, as this court has recognized many times, most recently in Johnson Controls and in Casey. Respondes submit that there are two kinds of class-based animus. In most situations, the conspirators deny to the class a right that is available to all. But here there is class-based animus for a different reason. Because petitioners engage in unlawful behavior, that denies a right that is available only to the class. This case is a particularly strong example of class-based animus, as I was saying before, because the right blocked here has been judicially recognized to be indispensable for the equality of the class. If equal protection of the law means anything, it must encompass knowing behavior to take away a liberty right that only the protected class has. In Casey, this court recognized that abortion is a unique act and that women must have control over their reproductive lives in order to be equal and autonomous citizens.
0: What, um, l- let me go back to that statement that it, it must cover uh, an effort to take away a right that only the protected class has. What do you do with the uh, um, hypothetical that uh, Mr. Roberts gave us of, of um, an Indian tribe that has, only, uh, uh, has exclusive fishing rights and, and ecologists uh, uh, seek to stop the fishing? That, that, that fits exactly the description you've just given us. Uh, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is the only class that has the rights, and you're seeking to prevent those rights from being exercised. How, are you saying that, uh, indeed, uh, in, in Mr. Roberts' example, that would be a violation of this statute?
6: I think that would show class-based animus. It would. If, yes, Your Honor, although I don't think that a ruling in this mm-hmm. case would need to reach that precise conclusion, because in this case we are only asking the court to recognize that class-based animus is present when a constitutional right is taken away.
5: But it seems to so, me you're fighting the hypothetical. The hypothetical is ecologists want to protect fish. They mm-hmm. don't care who's fishing.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, so you change the hypothetical. If you stick with the hypothetical, then what's your answer?
6: I, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't mean to change the hypothetical. I do agree the, that I mean,
5: Because there's just common sense, we know, there's no animus against Indians. So what result in that case?
6: They are, they are depriving Indians of a right that only that class has. Class-based animus would be present. This court has not required personal malice or hostility. For example, if segregationists were blocking the entrance to an integrated school and doing that because they oppose the activity of integration, not because they oppose blacks as a class, I believe this court would find class-based animus.
5: That, that, that's, uh, it seems to me that definition of animus is a legal fiction.
6: I do not believe so, Your Honor. I believe that if a class, ha- if, if there is a constitutional right that only that class has, that that must violate equal protection to take away that right. Now, of course, in the, the fishing hypothetical, the class there is not exercising a constitutional right. They're a- exercising only an activity that that class wishes to engage in. This court does not need to go that far in answering this case. This case presents the question of a class such as women or African American citizens trying to get into an integrated school, exercising a fundamental and important constitutional right. And in this particular case, a constitutional right that the joint opinion in Casey recognized it's crucial for women to be equal and autonomous citizens. Of course,
5: this, the school case is on the other end of the spectrum because there it was clear that there was an animus against people by reason of their race, an animus, a hostility.
6: No, Your Honor. Many segregationists say that they opposed not the black race, but they opposed the activity of integration. And even if they said that they loved the class but opposed physically obstructed, the entrance of black children into Central High and Little Rock, I believe this court should find class-based animus there as it should here. I believe that taking away a right of that only that class has must violate the animus requirement for Section five three. The Solicitor General relies on Gedaldig to argue that no class-based animus exists. Gedaldig was decided in 1974 when this Court's gender-based equal protection standard was still evolving. Godaldig differs dramatically from this case because there the Court was asked to interpret the Constitution to provide mandatory benefits. As recognized by Chief Justice Rehnquist in the 1977 National Gas Company v. Sadi decision, Godaldig by its own terms is limited to cases dealing with the distribution of benefits, not the imposition of burdens. Here, women are asking for statutory protection from the complete denial of their rights, and they are not seeking any monetary or other benefit. As this court recently reaffirmed in Casey, the denial of women's reproductive rights denies women the ability to control their destiny. Turning to the right to travel, the independent right violated here. The right to travel here was violated in the most blatant way possible, by actual physical obstruction of movement. Griffin is the only other case where this court has addressed the, the right to tri- travel under Section 1985 The facts here track the unanimous decision of Griffin in three important ways. and In one way, th- this case is much stronger than Griffin. First, in both cases, the defendants physically obstructed travel, although not at a state border. Here, in Griffin, there was a single episode of obstruction of travel on a public highway. Here, there was a pattern of blockades at a clinic in Falls Church, Virginia, less than 10 miles from the D.C. and Maryland borders. The court below found that petitioners engaged in the conspiracy, as Justice Stevens noted before, for the purpose, either directly or indirectly, of depriving women of the right to travel. Second, In Griffin, the court remanded to determine if there had been actual or intended interstate travel. And here there was a factual finding by the court that a substantial number of respondents, in fact, engaged in interstate travel. As the Griffin case came to this court, there was very little evidence of interstate travel. In fact, the Solicitor General's brief in that case, which was filed on behalf of those people who had been deprived of their rights, noted in footnote 6, that they believed there had been no allegations of interference with interstate travel. That is why this court in Griffin allowed the plaintiffs on remand to, elect, to prove some connection with interstate travel in a variety of ways.
3: Ms. Ellis, just out of curiosity, because I don't remember, which side did the Solicitor General take in the Griffin case?
6: The Solicitor General in that case took the side of the black plaintiffs who had been beaten up.
3: So they asked for an expansive interpretation of the state.
6: They did, Your Honor, and they said in that case, that equal protection of the laws should be interpreted um, broadly to, um, even if interstate travel wasn't violated, that because the plaintiffs there had been beaten up, their equal protection of the laws had been violated. Third, in both Griffin and this case, the defendants blocked the travel, not because they cared about the travel per se, as we've said last time, but because they wanted to stop the activities the plaintiffs were traveling for. In Griffin, it was civil rights activities, and here it was to exercise the right to privacy. So this case tracks Griffin in the three ways of physical obstruction, actual interstate travel, and the fact that in both cases, the people were traveling in order to exercise other constitutional rights. Significantly, however, this case is stronger than Griffin, because in Griffin there were only two conspirators, and here there was a mob. And as I've mentioned before, Congress was particularly concerned in enacting Section 1985-3 about the fact that mobs could deprive individuals of equal protection of the law in a way that a sole person cannot. Nonetheless, the Solicitor General insists that respondents are opening a Pandora's box because, he argues, there's no showing that petitioners purposely interfered with respondents' right to travel. Well, here, of course, petitioners did physically block respondents' right to travel. There can be no more blatant obstruction of the right of travel. In, this court's, most, of, in the, most of this court's other travel cases, such as Shapiro versus Thompson, there is no direct interference with the right to travel only in Griffin, and in this case, was their physical obstruction. The, the Solicitor General's argument can be accepted only if this Court takes an unnaturally narrow view of the right to travel under Section 1985-3, so that it is only violated when the defendants block only interstate travelers and when they block them with their sole purpose to prevent crossing straight state lines. That was not the case in the unanimous decision of Griffin versus Breckinridge, and yet this court held the right to travel could be violated. This case is on all fours with Griffin.
0: Griffin, of course, involved uh, unquestioned uh, discrimination against uh, and animus against the class, blacks, right? I mean, that, that was just uh, not an issue at all, at all in Griffin.
6: It was not an issue, Your Honor, because they inferred the animus from the fact that they beat them up. There was in Griffin in note ten, the court said that um, animists should not be confused with cien.ter
0: Well, that's right, but the and that the, also should not the purpose be. here was was discrimination against blacks. The purpose in, in Griffin
6: that was in, that purpose was inferred from the fact that they beat them up. And they did not a, say that they hated blacks.
0: Well, that's but that's a big issue here. That's whether, right, Your Honor. whether, whether it is indeed a class of women that is the object of the uh, uh, of the activity or, or whether a, a class of, uh, of those seeking or assisting in abortion. Your Honor... So, I, you know, I think that's a big difference between the two cases.
6: Your Honor, there is no doubt that petitioners' purpose is to stop the activity of abortion. Abortion is a constitutional right of a class of women. That is the same as petitioners, if petitioners were trying to block an integrated school, trying to block an activity that is a constitutional right of black citizens. In doing that, they would also block other people coming into the school. They would block the teachers and block parents, custodians. Just as here, petitioners block others coming into the abortion clinic. Nevertheless, less it is clear that the animus is directed towards women.
0: It's not the proper analog. It seems to me the proper analog is blocking everybody from going into the school and then saying in blocking everybody, you're also blocking blacks.
6: I agree with that, Your Honor. That is a proper analogy. And,
0: and, and you think that that would be a violation if you, if you s- said we don't want anybody to go to school?
6: I think if the segregationists in Little Rock said that our object is to block anyone from going into this integrated school because the school is integrated, yes, Your Honor, I think that is class-based animus. In fact, I think many segregationists did try to do that. They didn't want anyone going into those integrated schools.
0: Yes, because the school is integrated.
6: That's right. But not
0: because they don't want people to go to school.
6: That's right. And here, they're blocking because they... The assertion
0: here is that they're blocking because they don't want people to to provide or receive abortions.
6: That's right, Your Honor. And it's exactly parallel. There, they did not want the class to exercise their, their constitutional right to an integrated education. Here, they do not want the class to exercise their constitutional right to an abortion.
0: In the one case, it's because of race. In this case, it remains to be established whether it's because of sex.
6: Your Honor, I think that the problem is it's always difficult to define, to divine the actual um, malice or animosity that is motivating someone. That's why the court said in Griffin that the class-based animus requirement should not be confused with a requirement of personal hostility. We do not know what was in the heart of the segregationists. All we know is that they tried to block a constitutional right that that class has. Similarly, we do not know what is in the heart of petitioners, but we do know that they have a conceded purpose to block women from exercising a constitutional right. While well, we believe that the violation of the right to travel is clearly sufficient to justify the injunction below, there are three other ways this injunction can be sustained. First, respondents made a privacy claim which was not ruled on, the court, ruled on by the courts below. Second, Section 1985 jurisdiction is also sustained by petitioners' avowed purpose to hinder and prevent local authorities from enforcing the law in violation of the second clause of Section 1885 a claim which has proved the blow, but not fully briefed. At this point, I would like to answer Justice Kennedy's question that you posed to um, opposing counsel. In this case, Your Honor, trial testimony showed that between the time the complaint was filed and the time of the trial, that a blockade occurred at a Maryland clinic. And in that clinic, the police could not guarantee safe passage to the patients who tried to get into the clinic even though they had called on all the resources of the county and the state police,
1: the issue of interference was raised below
6: of hindrance the, entrance, the issue of hindrance, your honor was proved below, but it was not fully briefed
1: and it wasn't the uh, uh, and it wasn't in the complaint was it
6: no, your Honor, the complaint is alleged though a violation of section 1985 five three generally
1: yes yes. And you say it was—you say it was litigated below.
6: I'm sorry, it was proved below. The evidence showed a hindrance of the state. Police but there were no below. findings
1: of the, of the district court, with the, with, in that respect.
6: Well, the finding—there were findings, not specifically directed towards a hindrance claim. And there was, there no was no, findings. but there was
1: no conclusion of law that the second clause was violated. That's right. And it was not addressed in the court
3: of appeal.
6: No, it wasn't, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. However, Your Honor, we do believe that under Rule 15B, the pleadings, of course, are amended to conform with the evidence, and that this question, should the court choose to reach it, is fairly subsumed within the fourth cert question here, which was, was the jurisdiction of the federal court substantial enough to justify the injunction?
0: You want us to find that that there was a purpose of hindrance?
6: I think, Your Honor, the the more appropriate course in this instance would be to remand for full briefing on hindrance, but I do believe there's evidence in the record should the court want to address that question. Finally, even if none of the Section three claims ultimately prevail on their merits... What
1: if we, re- what, what if we reject your, uh, your, your claims other than the uh, hindrance claim uh, <clears throat> we just don't say anything about? Let's assume we just don't say anything about hindrance, but otherwise you lose. Is the case over Your honor I suppose the, uh, I suppose the mandate would uh, would say uh, is remanded for further proceedings uh, consistent with uh, what we held.
6: I think at, at the minimum the case should be remanded for develop, for briefing I'm sorry, for decision on the privacy claim, which was alleged and briefed but never addressed by either of the courts below. Well, I thought
1: it was addressed by, by the district court.
6: No, Your Honor. The court decided not to reach that claim. It, discussed it said it was it.
1: problematic, I guess.
6: It did say it was problematic, yeah. um, but it decided not to adjudicate the
1: claim. Well, what about the hindrance the claim? Pardon? What about the hindrance claim? You say that the proper thing to do would be to remand on that?
6: hmm I believe so, Your Honor. And I believe in any case that there is enough... Um, that the, the hindrance and the privacy claims are substantial enough so that jurisdiction exists and the injunction could be sustained on the pending state law claims, which the court found to be violated.
0: I, I, if, if the basis for our rejection of your other claims is the lack of, uh, in our view, the lack of, an, of, of having established animus, then the uh, hindrance claim is over as well.
6: Your Honor, we have reconsidered our position on that. You have
0: reconsidered your position on that. We
6: have reconsidered our position on that.
0: Last time you said it would have been over as well.
6: That's right. We did, Your Honor. And on reflection, we have reconsidered our position on that. We believe that there are strong reasons that class-based animus should not be required for the hindrance claim because the class-based animus requirement was created by this court in Griffin out of concern for not federalizing Section 1985-3 into a tort law. Those same concerns do not exist with the hindrance claim, and we would say that this is more like Cush versus Rutledge, the case where this Court found no requirement of class-based animus for Section 1985-2. And in Cush, this Court also emphasized that in Griffin, the Court was only addressing the clause of Section 1985-3. Well, uh,
1: it may be, even if you're right, there, there might still be a question of whether uh, uh, of whether the protesters had the purpose of overwhelming city uh, city uh, police.
6: That's right, Your Honor. But that was proved at trial. There was actually evidence in the record showing that one of their exhibits asked to have thousands of a pe- thousand or fifteen hundred people, come because when that many people come, there are too many people. There may be the evidence in the
1: record uh, to support a finding, but the finding hasn't been made.
6: Well, Your Honor, in footnote four, the district court's opinion, the court talked about how the activities of petitioners overwhelm the Falls church police department and talked about a specific example.
0: That's the effect. There's no difference between purpose and effect. I mean, that's a, a common theme throughout your argument. The footnote you're referring to said that the effect was to overwhelm, but we're talking here about purpose. The statute requires that it be the purpose, doesn't
6: it? Right, and there's evidence... And there's no
0: finding on that, is
6: there? There's no finding on that. There's evidence in the record, though, to support that finding. For the little children in Little Rock, this court said in Cooper v. Aaron that the vitality of constitutional principles cannot be allowed to yield simply because of disagreement with them. Congress enacted Section 1985-3, so that the mob, no more than the state, could nullify constitutional rights. Like the plaintiffs in Griffin, women here invoke the core coverage of Section 1985-3 so that they may may be able to exercise their constitutional rights under the protection of the rule of law.
3: Thank you. may I go ahead? No, no. Just to clarify one thing in my own mind, was the injunction entered here as a a preliminary injunction or was it a final injunction?
6: It was a permanent injunction that expired at a definite time. It has since been extended on five separate occasions and now is set to expire on January 8, 1993.
3: But as initially entered, it was a final injunction. It was.
6: The the trial court consolidated the the final hearing with a preliminary hearing.
0: The the question I have is I, I, I don't quite understand why you say that there's there's no danger with respect to the hinder clause of, of uh, uh, turning uh, turning this provision into a general tort law and therefore we don't need to import the animus requirement. Surely any time anyone bribed a policeman or or conducted all all sorts of activities that would impair law enforcement wouldn't that be uh, wouldn't that come under this under this provision?
6: I think, Your Honor, it would have to be for the purpose of depriving of equal protection of the laws. And so I don't think bribing a policeman would come under.
0: Well, no, you're you're eliminating an animus requirement. Right. You you don't, it doesn't have to be Mm class-based. All all you have to do is try to stop a policeman from protecting somebody else's rights. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? So that that would uniformly be covered.
6: No, Your Honor, I think that hindrance should apply to um, acts that attempt to take away the equal protection of the laws by hindering the local authorities. It cannot just apply to bribing a policeman. The statute requires... Why not? You, post-
0: you bribe him to do something, uh, that is, to deprive someone of, uh, of activity that he'd otherwise provide. I mean, that's the purpose of bribing.
6: That is clearly not what Congress was concerned about. Well, I'm, him,
0: sure in I'm sure that's
6: and true. in act in Section
0: I'm sure that's true, but, I, but I, I don't see how you avoid that without importing into the hindrance Clause the same same class-based animus requirement that you have imported into the other clause.
6: I think the best way to avoid that is to require that you be hindering the police for the purpose of interfering with federal constitutional rights. Just as this court has required a violation of the independent right under the first clause of 1985-3, I think that you would also want to make sure that it was for the purpose of interfering with federal constitutional rights which I think is well-supported by the text of the Democratic Not Constitution. state
0: constitutional rights? How, 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 do you, how can you eliminate state, consti- uh, state rights? As a, uh, why do you limit the text just to federal constitutional rights?
6: Well, I think that either would be an acceptable course no, for I this court. So. This court has so far only specifically protected federal constitutional rights under 1985-3. That, of course, is an open question.
0: Thank you, Ms. Ellis. Uh, Mr. Seculo, you have 11 minutes remaining.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, Briefly, first, reliance on Cush versus Rutledge with regard to the hindrance claim is misplaced because the legislation requires under the prevent and hinder clause the same word equal. The amendment process required equal to be added. The word equal in the statute was where the animus language uh, derived from and that clearly has to be here. I understand they're now trying to pull away from their previous uh, admission on that point, but Cush the, the versus Rutledge certainly doesn't point to that. In fact, Justice Stevens, in finding the claim could proceed under 1985 2, there noted that specifically the same language in 85 2 was not present in 85 3. Secondly, um, the defendants' or the petitioners' hearts were read, if you will, by the district court here, what their purpose was. Uh, the court stated, the district court found, it is undisputable that all defendants share a deep commitment to the goals of stopping the practice of abortion and reversing its legalization. There is no animus against the class of women. It is an opposition to a specific activity. Secondly, to to view animus in the way respondents have would be, using an example, if, in fact, there was a uh, disagreement or an opposition to affirmative action by a particular group. Uh, And that would, if, if their view were to carry the day, would have an effect on affirmative action. But to translate that effect into a invidious discriminatory animus, that that now means that the uh, group that was gaining the benefit of the Affirmative Action Project is now the target of their animus, would be incorrect, unless it was some type of pretext for the the objection. For instance, in the school example that was given, if in fact desegregation, the uh, integration of the school took place in the situation that was referred to in Little Rock, there it was clear that the objection, The opposition was not to children going to school. It was the opposition of children going to school with black children. The the motive, the animus in that case, clearly was the opposition to blacks going to the the schools. I'd also state that uh, our position is that SATI uh, certainly does not uh, support the position on discriminatory, invidious discrimination because Sadi was a Title VII case. This court has required invidious discriminatory animus clearly here The animus, as I said, is the opposition of abortion. The fact that it has an effect on women uh, seriously mischaracterizes the nature of the dispute and also, I I think, mischaracterizes the nature of of the issue presented to this court. Uh, This court in Casey did not state that the right to abortion was essential to equality. I think that's important here. The fact that this court's jurisprudence with regard to reproductive freedom has had an effect on women's ability to participate equally in the nation and the social life of the country uh, does not become the legal equivalent of there now being an invidious discriminatory animus. And I think Casey, to the contrary, clearly does not support the proposition that opposition to abortion constitutes invidious discrimination against women. First, throughout its abortion jurisprudence, this Court has not found the right to exist under the Equal Protection Clause, which would be the normal place to find Uh, restrictions being reviewed as invidiously discriminatory under the Equal Protection Analysis. That's not what this Court has chose to do. Uh, Secondly, I think uh, significantly that the Court's opinion in Casey points to the issue that opposition to an activity does not constitute invidious discrimination against women. Specifically, in the joint opinion, it is stated, men and women of good conscience can disagree and we suppose some always shall disagree about the profound moral and spiritual implications of terminating a pregnancy even in its earliest stage, some of us referring to members of the court as individuals find abortion offensive to our most basic principles of morality. If men and women of good conscience can sincerely disagree over this issue, then how can opposition to abortion constitute per se invidious discrimination against women? It cannot. The court also recognized in Casey specifically that abortion is a unique act and it said it is fraught with consequences for others, and included in those others was the life or potential life of the unborn child, the woman who undergoes the procedures for family and for spouse. The court further went on in Casey to recognize that there is, and I'm going to quote again, as with abortion, reasonable people have differences of opinion. One view is based on such reverence for the wonder of creation that any pregnancy ought to be welcomed and carried to full term, no matter how difficult it will be, to provide for the child and ensure its well-being. Another is that the inability to provide for the nurture and care of the infant is cruelty to the child and anguish to the parents. These are intimate views with intimate, infinite variations, and they're deep personal and character. Those statements from the joint opinion in Casey clearly, unequivocally, do not support the proposition that opposition to abortion is the legal equivalent, per se, invidious discrimination against women. And I think clearly it cuts the other way. What this court recognized in Casey is that the issue of abortion is one of profound national debate. But,
3: of course, this case involves more than opposition to abortion.
2: I, th- I think not. They're
3: Don't you think the, your clients did something more than just let, let it be known that they were opposed to abortion?
2: Our, and they try
3: specifically to interfere with people who cross the state line to get abortions. It's uh, more than opposition.
2: The, the first, that it, I think that's the ultimate opposition to abortion is interfering uh, with abortion as the animus, the activity of abortion. It is their opposition, and it's unequivocal that that is their opposition. They seek to deter women, and our, our, of course our position is not for the purpose of uh, keeping out-of-state people versus in-state people. Clearly, that's not supported by this record, Justice Stevens. But their opposition... Well, un- well would
3: it be supported if all of the patients in the clinic came from out-of-state?
2: No, it would not, because that is not the purpose of their activity. Okay. Now, if it was... I won't even speculate, but the the truth here is that the animus is, as this Court recognized, that men and women of good conscience will disagree on this issue. These petitioners obviously take the position and are opposed to the act, the conduct, as this Court said, in case of abortion.
3: They're opposed to an act that only members of the class can engage in.
2: They are precisely, and if that's the case... Which, there, it is only the,
3: entirely the, unlike the Indian example, because anybody can fish.
2: I, I don't think so, because I, I think they're directly parable. The fact that only women can exercise the right points to the fact that there cannot not be a denial of equality, and that is clearly required by the statute here. Plus, the scope of the petitioner's conduct is aimed at the entire process of abortion. It is opposition to an activity of abortion. That's what is at issue here, and everyone involved in that process. Thank you. Mr. Yes, Mr.
1: About uh, the state causes of action?
2: There were claims here under the, on, under trespass. and well, does, the,
1: does the injunction uh, rest on that? Yes,
2: there was independent grounds, the court said, for the injunction under state
1: grounds. Well, what would we do if we agree with you about the injunction?
2: I, I think that this court would remand it uh, back to the Fourth Circuit for determination whether there was sufficient subject matter jurisdiction. Our position is that the right to travel claim is so substantial not to confer it, but the issue that the injunction rested upon and it, upon which attorney's fees were issued was the claim under 42 U.S.C., Section 1985, 3, which is the lineal descendant of Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mr. Sekulov. The case is submitted.